We will be in Revelation chapter 1, starting in verse 9, going to the end of the chapter. I, John, your brother and partner in the tribulation and the kingdom and the patient endurance that are in Jesus, was on the island called Patmos on account of the word of God and the testimony of Jesus. I was in the spirit on the Lord's day, and I heard behind me a loud voice like a trumpet saying, write what you see in a book and send it to the seven churches, to Ephesus and to Smyrna and to Pergamon and to Thyatira and to Sardis and to Philadelphia and to Laodicea. Then I turned to see the voice that was speaking to me, and on turning, I saw seven golden lampstands, and in the midst of the lampstands, one like a son of man, clothed with a long robe with a golden sash around his chest. The hairs of his head were white, like white wool, like snow. His eyes were like a flame of fire. His feet were like burnished bronze, refined in a furnace. And his voice was like the roar of many waters. In his right hand, he held seven stars. From his mouth came a sharp two-edged sword, and his face was like the sun shining in full strength. When I saw him, I fell at his feet as though dead. But he laid his right hand on me, saying, Fear not, I am the first and the last and the living one. I died, and behold, I am alive forevermore, and I have the keys of death and Hades. Write, therefore, the things that you have seen, those that are and those that are to take place after this. As for the mystery of the seven stars that you saw in my right hand, and the seven golden lampstands. The seven stars are the angels of the seven churches, and the seven lampstands are the seven churches. This is God's word. Thank you, Paul. Good morning, Christ community. Uh, my name is Pat. I'm one of five elders who currently serve this church, and it is, as always, a privilege to bring God's word to you this morning. We are of course, continuing in our series covering the first three chapters in the book of Revelation. And these 12 verses that Paul just read share the account of John's vision of Jesus. The vision of Jesus that comes immediately before Jesus speaks to the seven churches. And our goal this morning primarily is to see Jesus. That is, in fact, what Jesus told John to do, to write what he saw. In one sense, beholding Christ is a major theme of this entire book. But in today's passage, John gives us a picture that will help us to hear all that Jesus has to say in the coming weeks. So let me pray for us one more time before I begin. Father, we do ask that you would be present with us by your Spirit, that you would open our eyes to see the glorified beauty of Jesus in this text. We thank you, God, for giving us a written record of what John saw that day. Would it encourage us this morning, we ask in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, let's look at the passage and how John starts it. In verse 9, and if you don't have a Bible... There are Bibles right in front of you in the pew. I invite you to take that out. It'll probably be helpful as we move through this text. In verse 9, he says, I, John, your brother and partner in the tribulation and the kingdom and the patient endurance that are in Jesus, was on the island called Patmos on account of the word of God and the testimony of Jesus. 
So John's about to address the seven churches in Asia Minor, and rather than assert some sort of authority as an apostle of Jesus Christ, he qualifies his connection to his readers in a spirit of solidarity. I'm with you. I'm one of you. Now look at what he says. First, brother and partner. See, John identifies with the church. They are family to him. They are interconnected as partners, but partners in what? He says three important things here. Tribulation and kingdom and the patient endurance that are in Jesus. Tribulation, kingdom, and patient endurance. Let's look briefly at these three unifying components between John and the church. What does the word tribulation mean? Webster simply defines it as a state of great trouble or suffering. So we know now that John is writing from the island of Patmos as an exile. Specifically, the word says, on account of the word of God and the testimony of Jesus. So I learned this past week that the four or so times in the book of Revelation when we see the word of God and the testimony of Jesus that this phrase is related to the faithful suffering of the family of God. John knows suffering, obviously. He was put on the island because he wouldn't stop talking about Jesus. In fact, he couldn't. Maybe the specific details of his tribulation are unique, but John knew that those who claim to follow Jesus should expect to experience great trouble and suffering. Secondly, John says he is a partner with the church in the kingdom. So Christians live in this really rather strange reality where living for Christ might cause you to be exiled on an island. And yet, all the while, we share in the kingdom of God. Jesus said in Matthew chapter 16, said, if anyone would come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. So if you want to follow Jesus, it will mean that you will, in different seasons and in different ways, be persecuted and suffer on account of following him. But, as Paul reminds us in Romans chapter 8, for Christians, in all things we are more than conquerors through him who loves us. And similarly, in Ephesians chapter 2, Paul writes, we have been raised up with him and seated with him in the heavenly places. And even in our passage from last week, John himself reminds us that Jesus has made us, the family of God, a kingdom of priests. John himself even records Jesus' own words in his gospel account that he penned in chapter 16. He writes that Jesus said this, In the world you will have tribulation, but take heart, I have overcome the world. So, you're going to experience tribulation, but we have the promise of the kingdom. So finally, as we await the return of Jesus, the third thing he says, we also share in patient endurance. As we're going to see in coming weeks, in the next two chapters, John both encourages and rebukes each of the seven churches. He writes to them to exhort them to hold fast to Christ until the end. But why? Because he assumes that they will be exiled in their own right, that following Jesus will inevitably bring pain, hardship, and distress. 
And if they are to attain Christ in the future, what they hope for, they must patiently endure the tribulation until the end. Paul again speaks of this in Romans chapter 8. He says, The Spirit himself bears witness with our spirit that we are children of God. And if children, then heirs, heirs of God and fellow heirs with Christ, provided we suffer with him in order that we may also be glorified with him. For I consider that the sufferings of this present time are not worth comparing with the glory that is to be revealed to us. Now, I hope you caught that. What he was saying is we are heirs of God and fellow heirs with Christ, provided we suffer with him. See, Jesus himself patiently endured until he was nailed to a cross. Christ is the motivation for patiently enduring tribulation. Knowing him and being made more like him will only come as we patiently endure the loss of all things so that we might gain him here in this life, but certainly even in death. See, the Christian inheritance of the very kingdom of God will not come apart from suffering for the sake of the gospel. You cannot claim to be a follower of Christ and yet flee affliction for the sake of Christ. It's incompatible. Suffering the loss of all things for the sake of gaining Christ is the common theme that binds us together as brothers and sisters in God's family. We are heirs with Christ, provided we suffer with him. And John knew this. I mean, he's speaking to the churches in Asia Minor, not from a high tower, but from an island in exile, not from a position of authority, but from a position of unity, of solidarity. If you follow Jesus, like John, tribulation is your right. It actually is a gift. It is for your good. And this truth is so important because in the following chapters, Jesus, through John, will rebuke the churches for false teaching, for lack of discernment, for tolerating heresy, for apathy, for spiritual blindness, for simply forgetting their first love, forgetting Jesus. And he does so from the trenches because he understands their tribulation. So before we continue, pause and let John's reality sink into your own heart. Do you know and love Jesus? Are you intimately acquainted with him in such a way that when you are exiled to an island with your dignity and comfort stripped away, when that happens, do you know him and love him in such a way that it will compel you to worship him? instead of despair. One commentator I read suggested this, that John's response to his suffering may be an instructive to some believers today who feel that an easy life is our birthright and prove hostile to those who threaten it. But we know that an easy life is not a birthright. An easy life actually threatens to rob us of the kingdom that, in part, is the thrust of the words that would be spoken to the churches in Asia Minor, and, I believe, what is being spoken to us here this morning. If you fear that following Jesus will threaten your comfort, it's likely because you have a hard time understanding that any attempt that we make to flee tribulation will actually threaten your very soul. That's the first thing we see. Christians inherit the kingdom of God through 
tribulation. So John's in exile on Patmos. He's at really a private renewal gathering, somewhat like this, a private worship service, him and God, on the Lord's Day, Sunday, and he is intimately in the Spirit. In fact, the way that this is written relates him to Old Testament prophets like Moses and Ezekiel. Being in the Spirit would have been understood by his initial readers as having been inspired by God. So John right now is being given divine authority by God himself to write God's word and present it to God's people. So listen to his words. Verse 10. I was in the spirit on the Lord's day and I heard behind me a loud voice like a trumpet saying, write what you see in a book and send it to the seven churches, to Ephesus and to Smyrna and to Pergamum and Tyatira and to Sardis and to Philadelphia to Laodicea. Just a quick note about the delivery method here. See, God told John to write what he saw in the book and send it to the church. The book of Revelation that we're reading is that book. And so how did God want his church to hear from him, to see him, to understand him? He wanted to accomplish that through the word of God on the pages of Scripture. See, we don't, at least I don't, hear Jesus standing behind me with a voice like a trumpet. But in lack of that, this isn't just the best that he could do. The very word of God that we have here is God's plan A. He gave us the word, and the word is powerful, and the word shows us Jesus. And so John was to write what he saw. And it's a rather strange concept, but it's also profound. See, John wrote here for the churches what he saw. What he saw was Jesus radiating with glory. And when we read this book, we see Jesus as John saw him. And so John is worshiping God in the Spirit, and he hears a voice like a trumpet that tells him to write what he sees to the seven churches. And the trumpet, by the way, mirrors that which was sounded as God came down on Mount Sinai to meet with Moses. The trumpet is a sound that historically called God's people to worship. So our context for what follows, to be clear, is this. John speaking to you, the church, brothers and sisters in tribulation. Brothers and sisters, tribulation is yours in Christ. If you are suffering, if you are experiencing persecution, if you are facing some sort of feeling of exile that feels like death to you, and as you patiently endure for the sake of the gospel, as you patiently endure denying the world and holding fast to Christ, John says very clearly, see Jesus. See Jesus. See who he is. See what he is like. And that's what we're going to do right now with John. And so he hears the voice like a trumpet, and he turns around, and what does he see? Well, first he sees seven lampstands. Now, you might wonder, what are these lampstands? Now, I really had to research this one. It was quite a challenge. If you look down at the last part of verse 20, very clearly says, the seven lampstands are the seven churches. Then look at verse 13. And in the midst of the lampstands, one like a son of man, clothed with a long robe and with a golden sash around his chest. 
Now, much of the language that's here and the vision that John has here is consistent from the vision given in the book of Daniel. Listen to this particular passage from Daniel 7, verses 13 and 14. I saw in the night visions, and behold, with the clouds of heaven, there came one like a son of man, and he came to the ancient of days and was presented before him. And to him was given dominion and glory and kingdom that all peoples, nations, and languages should serve him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion which shall not pass away, and his kingdom one that should not be destroyed. See, John sees a vision of Jesus, but the one critical point initially here in how this vision unfolds is that when Jesus is speaking, he is in the middle of the seven churches. So as we read in Daniel, the one who has dominion over all people, nations, and languages is standing in the midst of his people. So our first point this morning was that Christians inherit the kingdom of God through tribulation. The second thing we see here this morning is that Jesus, the ruler of all nations, is with his people in tribulation. And this is such good news for us. And it is so consistent with the very nature of God. See, he dwells with his people. He lovingly encouraged them, instructs them, corrects them, not as a far-off distant king, but one who is in their midst. Jesus is the man prophesied in Daniel's vision, the ruler of all nations, languages, the king with everlasting dominion, and when we see this king, he is standing with his people in their suffering. Before we see the details of what Jesus actually looks like and hear more from him, let's understand the significance of the lampstands here. I'm not going to take us to the specific passages, but the Old Testament, rather in the Old Testament, the lampstand stood in the Holy of Holies, inside the tabernacle. And God's people would understand that light coming from the lampstands was to represent the presence of God. So what we see here is Jesus now tending to the lampstands. One writer I was looking at this week suggests a helpful picture of Jesus forming the wax and trimming the wicks and breathing life into flickering flames. But one primary purpose of his tending is so that the light emanating from the church would not fade. See, Christ's community, Jesus, the sovereign king of all creation, whose kingdom has no end, by his spirit, is in our midst, and he has no interest in allowing the witness of this church to grow dim by leaving us unattended. To be clear, if you want to follow Jesus, it will cost you your life. It will come with tribulation. Jesus is not interested in taking that away, but he also will not depart from us. He is present. The trumpet sounds, or an acoustic guitar plays, every Sunday morning, the Lord's Day, and it calls us to gaze at the glory of Christ in his written word, and then calls us to respond with hearts of obedience so that we might delight in him and proclaim Christ to a world covered in darkness all around us.
So let's see more of what John saw by taking a closer look at the details. Here's what we read about the vision of Jesus. It says, He was clothed with a long robe and with a golden sash around his chest. The long robe simply reminds us that Jesus is the high priest, the one who offers a sacrifice to God for the sins of God's people. That there is a golden sash around his chest points to the fact that he's not just any priest, but a royal, great high priest, the greatest high priest. 14 says, The hairs of his head were white like white wool, like snow. His eyes were like a flame of fire. Yet another reference from Daniel, the white color of his hair symbolizes wisdom and discernment. And the fact that his eyes were like flames of fire, as is noted later in Revelation, likely a reference to his role as the judge over his people. But more than that, as we'll see more of in chapter 2, his eyes can see directly into the heart of man. He knows our condition. He knows the condition of our souls. His eyes do not sleep, they do not grow tired, and they shine with light that pierces into darkness. 15 says, His feet were like burnished bronze, refined in a furnace. Bronze would be a metal that was used for weapons, a harder metal, signifying again judgment and his ability to prevail and even tread over his enemies. And his voice was like the roar of many waters. The voice of the Almighty is immensely powerful. And in his right hand, he held seven stars. We know from verse 20, again, that these stars represent the seven angels of the churches. It's not entirely clear what all is entailed here, but at the very least, we're reminded that Christ has dominion even over the heavenly realm. And from his mouth came a sharp two-edged sword, and his face was like the sun shining in full strength. The image here comes from Isaiah chapter 11. And he shall strike the earth with the rod of his mouth, and with the breath of his lips he shall kill the wicked. See, Jesus has the words of truth, the words of life, and we're reading those words right now. And those words, this two-edged sword, will bring judgment for sin, but it will also bring the hope of redemption and eternal life. And all the while, As John gazes, he sees his face shining with the full strength of the sun. And so pause for a moment and consider what John saw. With one glorious vision now given to us, he saw the very king of kings, ruler and judge of all nations, standing with his people, a great and holy high priest, infinitely wise, with a voice that silenced everything around it, Eyes that peered with fire into the depths of our souls, speaking the words of truth and bringing life, our everlasting king. So what happens when you see this? Well, when John saw it, verse 17 tells us, I fell at his feet as though dead. This is an appropriate response to what John saw, and it's an appropriate response for us. He is surely overwhelmed by what he is seeing. But what's more, for you and I sitting here today, the perfect everlasting king peers into our hearts and knows every thought, every deed, every evil desire, every worship-filled delight. And to be known like that can bring great fear. To stand in front of that king, King Jesus, would of course strike fear into any man. Of course it would. 
He has the power to condemn you, and his radiance is as bright as the sun. But watch what happens to John. Listen to this. But he, Jesus, he laid his right hand on me, saying, Fear not, I am the first and the last and the living one. I died, and behold, I am alive forevermore, and I have the keys of death and Hades. First, we saw that Christians inherit the kingdom through tribulation. Second, we saw that Jesus is with his people in tribulation. But here we see that Jesus restores the afflicted. See, when John falls on his face in fear as though dead, Jesus draws near to him and he touches him. And what does he say? Do not fear. Why? Because I am the Alpha and the Omega, the first and the last. In other words, I am the sovereign of all creation. There is no one before me. There is no one after me. But that alone is not enough to cast out fear. But he continues, I am the living one. I died, and behold, I am alive forevermore. See, Jesus reminds him of his death and of his resurrection, and then he tells him what that means. He has the keys of death and Hades. In other words, Jesus has victory over the grave, and all of those who are found in Christ shall share in that victory. And so in the midst of great tribulation, even death has no power over his church. Jesus restores with his very own life fear-ridden dead people. Look at that phrase. I have the keys of death and Hades. Who can stand against us? We are more than conquerors in Christ. Who can bring a charge against us, the people of God? Jesus has the keys of death, and he has overcome it. He says to us, as he says to John, do not fear. Do not fear. Rise to your feet. See Jesus, the everlasting king who rules all nations, and see that he draws us near, that he gives us his life. He gives it up for us, that he was resurrected, and that he is alive forevermore. See, this is the gospel. The good news that no matter what falls upon you, trials or hardships, persecution, no matter what seeks to destroy you, you need not fear. The Lord has overcome the grave and he raises you up on your feet and places your feet on the solid rock that is Christ. Tribulation, suffering, troubles, sin that seeks to destroy us, there are so many things in this life that will seek to distract us from looking at Jesus, that will send us running to other things for hope. But as followers of Jesus, as we look at him, we know that only he has the words of life. When you suffer loss, when we suffer loss, and we will, various kinds, do not lose heart. Look at Jesus. See his steady hand lifting you to your feet. In every trial, in every temptation, in every hardship, we must fix our eyes upon Jesus. 
And that is what we aim to do every single time we meet here in this place. Verse 19 ends with this. Write, therefore, the things that you have seen, those that are and those that are to take place after this. And that propels us into the next two chapters where Jesus speaks to the church. See, he's going to encourage them. He's going to to tell them what he sees that he delights in. But he's also going to rebuke them and correct them. And he will shepherd them and tend to them. But all of that comes after they gaze at him and see him as the all-sufficient sovereign ruler of the nations who draws near to them and casts out fear. Let me pray for us. Father, I do pray that the application of our hearts would be to see Jesus. This text clearly paints a picture of the risen Christ God, that if we were to see it with our eyes, I believe we would fall as John did on our face, as though dead. But I do pray, God, that as we hear over the next coming weeks your encouragements to the church, your corrections, God, that we would remember that you are the God who leaned down, put your hand on us, and said, do not fear. Thank you, God, that you are worth gazing at. Thank you for being worthy of our worship because of your work on our behalf. In Jesus' name, amen.